All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, y'all, introducing Bonnie Christian. She is a fellow at Defense Priorities and a regular writer over at the American Conservative Magazine. And she is the author of the new book, Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. Welcome back to the show, Bonnie. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having me back. Uh, very happy to have you here. So, uh, well, you got this great piece at the American Conservative Magazine about Somalia that I want to talk with you about. Uh, but first of all, tell us about this new book that you have, Untrustworthy. Sure. Um, so it's coming out in October, October 11th, but you can pre-order right now. Um, and the idea is to to look into why we increasingly don't know what is true, what is knowable, whom we can trust, and also what we can do uh, for ourselves and also for our communities to become better consumers of information, um, more able to parse, parse truth from lies. Okay, can you give us a little taste of that? What do you mean? Well, um, so there's uh, there's six topical chapters that look at sort of different facets of what's going on. So one looks at like traditional and social media. Um, another looks at mobbish behavior online. A third looks at conspiracism. And those are all sort of more descriptive, saying like, what is the problem that we have? Um, and then toward the end of the book, I turn to talking about um, building intellectual virtue, building habits that support those virtues, and also thinking um, more deliberately about how we acquire knowledge and how we uh, think about um, thinking, essentially, uh, if we're going to be online all day and taking in information constantly, as so many of us are, I think we need to be more deliberate about that process, not just sort of let it happen to us. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually read a thing where Ezra Klein discovered Neil yes, Postman. Yes, it was a great story. Um, have you read Technopoly by Postman? I have. Um, it's been a while. And then he was also talking in that article about um, The Shallows, which is a, mm -hmm. another great one. Right. Yeah, I always wanted to read that, like <laughs> Klein, I guess. <laughs> he finally got around <laughs> to it. I never have. But... I definitely am feeling that. I'm, in fact, I'm in withdrawals right now. I'm trying to re-kick my Twitter habit in order mm. to get my next book written, and it's really difficult. It has uh, rewired my brain. Yeah, in, uh, yeah, that's, lousy uh, ways. that's a tough one. Yeah. Um, all right, well, now here's the thing that they can't rewire out of my brain is I still am interested in and care about George W. Bush's war in Somalia. It's now <laughs> America's longest war. Uh, really has been since last December. It was the Bush sent the CIA and JSOC uh, in December 2001, right when they were letting bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri escape from Tora Bora. They were sending special operations forces to Somalia, you might say, instead. Um, and also, of course, to prepare for a war with Iraq. But anyway, um, we've been at war there ever since. And, of course, the war has helped induce a couple of famines, um, you know, doubling up on the damage from the drought, 
uh, with the war going on all this time and that kind of thing. Hundreds of thousands of people have died unnecessarily. And at the end of the Trump administration, he actually ordered all our troops out, but then he rescinded that order and said, okay, well, move them to Djibouti, but don't end the war. And that was, I guess, the compromise at the end of the Bush, uh, pardon me, at the end of the, they all look alike to me, these people, <laughs> uh, at the end of the Trump years. So then Biden came in, and your headline reads, Biden sends U.S. troops back to Somalia. So now they are no longer, quote unquote, commuting to work, like it said in, was it Task and Purpose or Military.com? Um, but uh, now they're right back in Mogadishu, where Washington, D.C. believes they belong. So now what, Bonnie? Yeah, well, that's the, the question. I mean, the I think for many Americans, when they think about Somalia, it's like, oh, Black Hawk down. And then there's so little awareness that we've been there pretty consistently for, you know, well over a decade now. Um, the, the, the Trump withdrawal, quote unquote, to, to neighboring countries and, and this idea that they're going to commute, it, it didn't really change that much. But it did at least have the, the virtue of not having them just sort of perpetually at some degree of risk to, to, to be in the line of fire to, to, and then potentially to escalate from there. So now they're back in and, and the argument, um, you know, is essentially that they're doing advise and assist stuff and that goes better if you're on site and you're like building relationships. And maybe that's true, but none of this really answers the question of like why we need to be there at all. Um, and that's just something that uh, it's sort of broadly written off as like, well, there's a threat. Um, the the primary group that we're fighting, Al-Shabaab, is a, a threat to the United States. And so we just sort of have to be there. Like we sort of have to be in so many places for so long. Yeah, exactly. And I think it was a few years ago you called it the chicken and egg war. Mm-hmm. You know, why is pot wrong? Because it's illegal. Why is it illegal? Because it's wrong. Same thing with the war in Somalia. How come we're at war in Somalia? Because we've always been at war in Somalia. We can't quit now, and then that's it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, uh, you know, who are, have much more specific uh, expertise on this than I do. A lot of people think that the the threat to like you people on U.S. soil, like the United States proper, um, and indeed to many U.S. interests abroad from Al Shabaab, is like slim to none, um, right? Like the idea just because they dislike us, just because they would like to attack us does not mean that they actually have the capability to come over here and do this. And so the reason why we are at risk from them is because we've, we've put ourselves in their neighborhood um, much more and, and that risk exists significantly because we're there to fight that risk. Uh, and so it just keeps going forever and ever. And so, you know, I, the this headline, Biden sends U.S. troops back to Somalia, that, that really refers to uh, a shift that happened in late May, if I recall correctly. So it's not brand new. Um, and there are, are senses, as I discussed and as we've discussed here, in which it doesn't make a, a huge difference because we had not, like, fully gone before. But it is discouraging to... Uh, you know, insofar as we're making tweaks, this is a, a tweak back towards uh, being more committed there than we had been uh, earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Well, in fact, at least the story goes, but this is, you know, Mattis's version of the story that he told the Washington Post was that at the very beginning of the Trump administration, Trump wanted out of there. 
And essentially the way he conveyed it anyway was Trump didn't even know where Somalia was and didn't want to learn or care. What are we doing in Somalia? Wherever that is, it's too far from here for me to care about it. So let's get our troops out. Yeah, Mattis told him, you have no choice. And he told him this ridiculous lie, too. We're there to prevent a Times Square-like attack, which, first of all, that came out of Pakistan. That had nothing to do with Somalia at all. And second of all, it was direct revenge for a drone strike against the Pakistani Taliban that had never attacked us or done anything to us. And that was what had motivated Faisal Shahzad to try to blow up Times Square in the first place. And then what did Trump do? Trump said, aye, aye, Captain, and gave him not just special operations forces, but even infantry. And they escalated that war for four years before he finally tried to draw it down. I was going to make sure to add that to the story because he could have ended the war back, uh, what, six years ago now. And he didn't do yeah, that. Yeah, and, and that point about the escalation, I think, is key to remember as well because I've seen some framing of like, oh, you know, Trump was going to get us out of it. And, and not to say that he didn't, like you said, at some point have some impulses in that direction. But um, the pace of, Uf- of U.S. airstrikes in Somalia during the Trump years as compared to the Obama years went dramatically upwards. Um, and so, you know, even though under Biden now we have more U.S. boots on the ground there uh, compared to the end of the Trump administration, the, the airstrike pace is still lower. So it, it's sort of a, a, a wash in terms of who was better on the subject. Um, right. But yeah, I think that that incident with Trump and Mattis is sort of a such a stereotypical Trump foreign policy story, right? Where like there's there's this some good impulse to sort of like uh, withdraw from things that aren't our business, but it's so ill-informed and, and there's not really any real principle there. And so it's easily overpowered when someone like Mattis comes in and says like, no, this is what we've got to do. Yeah. And it's so unfortunate to see it happen, and it did happen over and over again. And, you know, the explanation for that in, in terms of the increase was because, you know, there's this mythology from Vietnam, which I'm sure is true to a degree, right? But the mythology is um, about that Lyndon Johnson's nitpicking and control over the generals and the battle plan, well, that's why they lost. Otherwise, they would have won if the Democrats had just stayed out and let the generals do their job and that kind of thing. And so then nobody wants to be accused of that. And George H.W. Bush explicitly said, we're not going to have any of that LBJ type micromanaging from me in this war. You know, that's like a huge thing in Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C., you know, that you can't be ever be accused of that. And so that was a big thing for Trump, too, that whatever is legal, do that. As far as you can devolve the the battlefield command over strikes, devolve it all the way down the chain of command. Whatever rules and regulations and legal restrictions the Obama people have put on their expanded drone wars and so forth, get rid of all of those things. Do the utmost of what is legal. Unleash the military. That way no one can ever accuse me of holding them back whenever they fail. And so that was what they did in Afghanistan, too. And, of course, there was great reporting that came out about a year ago about the Mm -hmm. massive increase of the drone war in the south of Afghanistan and the absolute hell that they brought to those people. Tens of thousands of people killed essentially for nothing. Just They're just killing whoever on the ground. Yeah, well, and relatedly on the subject of Afghanistan, I'm sure you saw the big David Petraeus piece that came out at The Atlantic today. Uh, and the, the 
meat of his argument was essentially we we did not do enough and if we'd kept doing more we could have committed to afghanistan indefinitely and just stayed there forever and both parties would have liked it and it would have been great and uh he specifically pointed to to 2010 like the height of the surge when there were a hundred thousand u.s boots on the ground in afghanistan as the time when we got the inputs right which is just it's remarkable that that thinking is still uh around and in such prominent places and voices. That's hilarious. I seem to remember him promising that he would have the Taliban on their knees with a bloody nose eating out of his hand by July of 2011 and how that did not happen. He lost yes, that well, in, war in personally. His telling, in his telling now, it's because uh, President Obama announced plans to withdraw as soon as he announced the surge plans. And so, you know, it was never was never quite strong enough. We just needed to do the war harder. And, you know, he just couldn't do it. Before that, the Taliban were under the impression that North America was right next door and we weren't going anywhere <laughs> ever. Yeah, I guess. Uh, something like that is uh, the story. I have a telling. solution. We just drop David Petraeus on Kabul. <laughs> and then uh, tell the Taliban, unless you want some more of that, you better shape up. Let hmm. those girls go to school. Uh which, by the way, there's just, I'm sorry, I'm throwing this all over your interview here, but we're talking about Afghanistan. I don't know if you saw the new Matthew Aikens piece in the New York Times Magazine about, it's like about half uh, girls' education being denied still and half the famine and humanitarian crisis going on and essentially the Great Depression of Afghanistan now with the oh, collapse no, of all the international that. aid. And yeah, he's just the best. So that's really worth taking a look at, everybody. And I'm going to try to have him on the show this week if I can. But um, yeah. So now back to Somalia here for a minute. Um, the uh, you make an important point in this. It, it's a silly little legal technicality, I guess. Shrug, right? But um, you do bring it up. I'm glad you do. So I'm bringing it up now too. This war is completely illegal. There's no authority from Congress from the baby blue united nations or any other pretended authority that says that this is okay other than george w bush felt like it yeah i mean this is one of the the many uh conflicts in which if i recall correctly this one was sort of thrown under the authority of the 2001 authorization for use of military force right. which was directly in the aftermath of 9-11 um but, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a different location. This is not the group directly responsible. Al-Shabaab is not Al-Qaeda. Obviously, there, you know, there are connections. But um, the, the way that that's been used, it's become so boundless. Uh, and it, it, this, it seems, you know, it's, it's, this is one of these things where it's, it's, you call it a war. I feel like it, it, it is a war, but it's, it sort of doesn't conform to our traditional, under, like, imagination in America of what a war looks like, which is so shaped by World War II, but it is essentially a war that, that we got into purely on presidential prerogative, and that has now continued um, for, for years and years uh, without any sort of formal congressional debate. There was no, uh, none of the proper authorization that should have happened. Yeah. Well, and, you know, people might wonder about the status of al-Shabaab back in 2001 when George Bush sent the CIA and the Joint Special Operations Command to fight there and uh, and to back to start bankrolling people there. Um, and the answer was that, uh, the answer is that they didn't exist. There's right, no they were founded uh, 
like 2005, 2006, right? Something like that. Yeah, exactly. They were the smallest, weakest part of the Islamic Courts Union until George Bush invaded and destroyed the Islamic Courts Union. And then they were the ones who picked up the rifles to fight. In fact, you know, the media always says that Al-Shabaab means the youth, but I forget which expert it was now, but I had an expert on the show. I bet it was Bronwyn Bruton from the Council on Foreign Relations uh, who had done so much great work on this. And she said, I think it was her. Oh, no, no. Maybe this was just something I read by that other lady. Anyway, but she says the uh, Al-Shabaab actually is better translated to the boys. Hmm. And so, you know, their job was to sit in the corner and be quiet while the uncles and uh, grandfathers and imams and elders decided what to do. Once the war began, of course, they're the fighting age males. So um, they're the force we've been dealing with ever since. The actual, you know, uh, it was the Ethiopian invasion that America, of course, sponsored and supported in at Christmas 2006. And it was only then that Al-Shabaab even became a threat at all. So, you know, that yeah. was fully five years into Bush's intervention there before that even happened. Um, yeah, I was I, I knew that they postdated 9-11, but I did not know, uh, certainly not that translation uh, detail. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a hell of a thing. Uh, that whole story is just completely crazy where all this comes from. It's, uh, you know, Justin Romando called it the war on terrorism writ small. I think that's mm. why it gets left out, too, because you know how Iraq leads to Libya, leads to Syria and Iraq War Three, and all these things. Somalia is sort of its own little story off on the side. And so, you know, even when I'm telling the story of the terror war, often it gets the short shrift, even though it's no less important than any of these other ones. Um but yeah, it, I think we, not... we think about being like in the Middle East much more than we think about North Africa. But we're in, if I, if I recall correctly, like the vast majority, more than three quarters of African nations we have some military presence in. Right. Um, and it's just not it's just not covered much. It's, it, you know, we found out after that ambush in uh, Niger a few years back that even Congress knew very little about all this, let alone the broader public. Right. Yeah. And for people interested in that, Nick Terse is, you know, really America's foremost expert on where is SOCOM in Africa all the time. And, you know, like, there's only one place in the world that you can read that, yeah, America has lost special operations forces fighting in Nigeria. And that's from Nick Terse. But his source is General Bolduck, who is in charge. <laughs> so it's a mm. pretty good single source story there. And, and otherwise, we didn't even know they were fighting there. People say, no, you mean Niger, right? Nuh-uh, Nigeria fighting Boko Haram. Hmm. And, and, you know, embedded with local forces fighting them, that kind of thing. And, and that's what the, the majority of it is, right, is, is training and embedding with indigenous forces to support whatever the status quo is in whichever country, you know. But, um, yeah. And, and by the way, um, well, um, I wanted to uh, point out this story that just came out, I guess, uh, a few days ago on the 2nd. Somalia points Al-Shabaab co-founder as religion minister. And I didn't see that. Yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, oh, what's this guy's name? Oh, I'm, I'm stuck behind a, a Reuters paywall now. I had it the other day. <laughs> but, um, you know, this is, you know, Rice in 2008, she went ahead and let Sheikh Ahmed Sharif, who had been the leader of the Islamic Courts Union, she went ahead and let him come in and take a job in the government. Uh, the mm. same government, you know, the same guy she had overthrown, essentially, in the war. Two years later, she's like, okay, fine, never mind. Uh, but then Al-Shabaab kept fighting. 
So, but it seems like this could be an opportunity for reconciliation here. I mean, if Al-Shabaab really has uh, a more profound presence inside the government itself, and this guy's not, you know, a turncoat to them, but is actually like their liaison to the state, something like that, then maybe there's hope here for a ceasefire. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, without having, you know, read up on that at all, certainly the Al-Shabaab attacks that you read about on, like, in Somalia that typically have these incredibly high numbers of civilian casualties, it's, it's, it's they, they need peace. So if this is a step in that direction, you know, hopefully that helps. Yeah. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for Tennessee Hot Sauce Company. Man, this stuff is so good. They get all different flavors. Garlic habanero, honey habanero, pineapple habanero, poblano jalapeno, and the blood orange ghost. They're all so good, I swear. And for a limited time, Tennessee Hot Sauce Company is featuring official Scott Horton Hotter Than the Sun thermonuclear hot sauce. It's full of Carolina Reapers, Scorpion Peppers, Dr. Pepper, hydrogen isotopes, and all kinds of things that'll burn your tongue clean off. Seriously, it's really good. Get yourself a hot sauce subscription. Spend $40 or more and use promo code SCOTT to get a free bottle of Hotter Than the Sun hot sauce. That's tnhotsauceco.com. Hey, y'all got to check out these awesome busts of our hero, the great Ron Paul. They're made by the renowned sculptor Rick Casali. They're 13 inches tall, hand-painted bronze resin based on Casali's brilliant original. Y'all may have seen mine in the background on my bookshelf in some recent interviews. The thing is unbelievable. Check out this incredible piece of art at rickcasali.com slash ronpaul, and you'll see what I mean. Use promo code Horton and you'll save 25 bucks, and this show will get a little kickback too. That's rickcasali.com slash ronpaul. Casali is C-A-S-A-L-I, rickcasali.com slash ronpaul. And there's free shipping too. Well, and just the fact that they've been trying to put this insurgency down since 2007 just proves that they can't. I mean, mm. that's it, right? Like It's just like the war in Afghanistan. Well, you created a nice little Potemkin village here. And as long as you have American forces and American dollars backing it up, it can stand. As soon as you don't, it's going to evaporate. And everybody knows it. And that's where the war has stood for the last the whole time. <laughs> so nothing has changed in that. So it is really it is, I think, almost a perfect analogy to Afghanistan there. Where, you know, it's not like Iraq where they were putting the super majority in power who then told us, fine, thanks for winning the war for us. Now don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out kind of thing. This is a completely failed endeavor. Yeah, I mean, it's it's another, certainly we haven't gone full scale nation building as we tried to do in Afghanistan. So it, it's the, the scale of our involvement is different. But I think you're right that there are comparisons about, you know, we think that we can go in and create a stable situation and time and again, it turns out we, we cannot. Yeah. Well, we do have AU forces occupying the place in place of NATO in this mm. case, but mm -hmm. it's, essentially it's the same thing, I think, you know, a smaller scale again, but yeah. But yeah. So listen, um, I think it's great that you're highlighting this story. Most people, most, you know, even foreign policy analysts and so forth just completely ignore it. I suppose most of them don't even know that this is going on, which is kind of its whole huge topic, right? How can we have a war for 20 years and nobody even knows about it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard even to, I, I sort of think of it as like part of the the regular rotation of topics to check in on, but there's only so much checking you can do when 
um, yeah, the, you know, the, the, our government isn't really doesn't really talk about it very often unless there's some sort of big shift like this moving troops back in. And so it's just sort of hard to even find out what is happening over there. What are we doing? Uh, it's not the, the government doesn't advertise it. It's it's undoubtedly difficult to report on. Uh, and it just keep keeps on happening year after year. Yeah. And it, you're right. I mean, that's an important point, right? That, you know, I guess because I have the media at large ignoring and all that, there's no pressure anywhere for the government to explain what's the plan. Do they have a strategy for Somalia? Where is it published? And how many times has it fallen? Have we fallen short, you know, since they originally published it? This kind of thing. It's just there's no debate over it whatsoever. The whole thing's yeah. just on autopilot. I think a really pernicious effect of, you know, like the the huge scale of investment in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan is that it makes it easy for the government to point to these smaller interventions like in Somalia and say, like, you know, this is not a big deal. It's really small scale. We're only spending a few million, a few billion, whatever on it every year. Like, just don't worry about it. Yeah, exactly. Um Somebody convinced me to watch the uh, was it HBO show Veep with Elaine from Seinfeld as the vice president. And I could just totally see this in that, you know, like, hey, <laughs> Madam Vice President, here's an issue. Somalia, Somalia, get the hell away from me with that. Right. Like, What could I possibly have to gain for sticking my neck out on an issue like that? That's would be the perfect representation of the point of view of all 535 on Congress on Capitol Hill and for everybody in the White House and the vice president's office, too, is that if this is anybody's pet issue, it's how to make the military happy by giving them some more money over it. It would never be that. Geez, people keep laying down dead of starvation because of our war. Maybe we should knock this off. That would never even occur to them. Uh, yes, that it would be it would be pretty ideal for Veep, in a, which is yeah, I think anytime that you you come across a, something that would fit well in Veep, it's a, a tragedy. Um, but yeah, I mean, if my hope is that if we can pay a little bit more attention to it, then perhaps that could create some some pressure to change things there. Whether that's realistic, given the way that. In, for the foreseeable future, given the way that these things sort of happen on autopilot at this point, um, hard to say. It's it's difficult to be hopeful with with these very long-standing interventions, um, since there's not really any. Uh, they at least don't seem to have some sort of end game in mind. It's it's very hard to ask for accountability, right? If there were if there were a goal, we could point to it and say like, have you reached this? Do you have a way to reach this? What is the concrete plan here? But there's just there's nothing to to measure the situation against. Right. And when we know that they cannot defeat him, I mean, I guess if you want to send in a hundred thousand American troops to try to completely decimate. Al Shabaab and and their you know uh, civilian supporters and all of that in a in some kind of full scale war then yeah we would win against I mean, them maybe, for again, temporarily anyway but and gain what you know? did that we did that in Afghanistan and look where we are now yeah yeah exactly so you know, I don't even know if day. that's I don't know if it's if there's any scale of of you know military intervention and occupation that can defeat what is significantly an ideological movement in a country where that, you know, we're pretty ignorant about. We don't really understand what we're getting ourselves into. 
Right. And, um, and yeah, for all of that, I mean, what would, even if we won and they were just gone, yeah, then what? What do we even gain for that? Nothing. You know, the whole thing makes no sense. And as you say, you know, the ideology of get the hell off of my front lawn is never going away anyway. So there would always be an insurgency uh, no matter what. So, um, and but then again, nobody is proposing anything like that because they know how foolish it would be. And so instead, nobody proposed anything other than, I guess, just more or less the status quo here, as we've talked about, you know, dialing up or down drone strikes or dialing up or down special operations boots on the ground is not much of a difference. Um, you know, a tactical difference, not a strategic one. The strategy is just keep going and then that's it. Hope nobody notices. Yeah, that uh, that seems to be about the shape of things and, and has been for, what, three presidents, four presidents now? Yeah. Hey, and by the way, I got to bring this up because there keeps being famines all the time there. And I think the first real one was in like 2010, 11, 12. And then they had another one in 2017. And then I saw a thing the UN was warning that things have been going there. Uh, you know, I know it's been bad for a couple of years and they're warning about the worst year yet coming this year. So I haven't, um, that's a few months ago, actually, I read that. Um, but a huge part of that, and nobody knows this, there's like one great story about this in the world, that's why I'm bringing it up, is to help spread it around. It's by Morgan Hunter at antiwar.com, and it's about the locust plague. A lot of people heard about the locust plague in East Africa. But mm -hmm. what a lot of people don't know is that it's all Barack Obama's fault, him and Donald Trump. And what they did was, by waging the war against Yemen, they essentially canceled the university in uh, Sana'a. Well, at the university in Sana'a, the graduate students, I guess, or whatever the students, had a program where every spring they went out and committed genocide against the grasshoppers. And the grasshoppers in Yemen apparently are legendary. And what you got to do is you got to murder them all while they're still grasshoppers. Because if you don't, they get overpopulated and they turn into locusts. Well, hmm. because of the war... The university was shut down, the program was inactive, and the grasshoppers overpopulated and turned into this massive locust plague, which then crossed the Red Sea and decimated crops in East Africa, in Kenya, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Somalia, and maybe more than that. And leading, I don't know exactly what the excess death rate is or whatever, but from everything I read, it was an absolute catastrophe. Huh. The I, uh, locust plague came. There. Yeah, it was all because I, of America's I haven't heard war. that, but we'll have to to look it up. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, Morgan Hunter at antiwar.com, and that really is like, come on, straight out of the Bible, right? Like that's something that God would do if He was really, really angry, or maybe Satan if He was like really having a mischievous day, He would help American foreign policy to unleash a locust plague. I mean, what in the world? It uh, it certainly has a biblical ring to it. It's just God, and then I mean, just on the face of it, it means innocent people dying of starvation, right? It means it's it's just absolute collective punishment, like the Old Testament. God, it's just you know completely out of control. Is he you know violating? If it was deliberate anyway, it would be the worst kind of uh, you know violation of the Geneva Conventions and that kind of a thing to deliberately wage a famine against a population which it is deliberate in Somalia, not the, lo I mean, in Yemen, not the locust part, but the blockade. But the locust part is just, I don't know what to say about it. It's just, it, it's what makes it all so 
unreal and so very real, you know? Hmm. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm familiar, uh, much more familiar with the, the famine conditions in Yemen than in Somalia. Um, but yeah, it's, it's unbelievable the, the suffering that's going on over there. I mean, it was estimated that 250,000 people had, which means mostly, you know, children under five years old, yeah. had, had starved to death in 2000, by early 2013. Hmm. So that was in the first big famine there. there. There was another big one in 2017, and they say they're going through one now. So combine that with the locusts, which again are, it's an accident of war, but it is a consequence of the war, a completely aggressive, unprovoked war against Yemen. And an, an illegal one, another completely unauthorized war. Um, yeah, that and that's it, that's another one where the the both well, in that case, uh, the Trump administration really uh, refused to to scale things down. The Biden administration has improved things somewhat, but we we still haven't completely found out uh, what their uh, cancellation of offensive operations consists of. There was that, that big announcement as soon as President Biden came into office. Mm -hmm. um, but then I'm sure you saw that there was that big Washington Post article earlier this summer, which indicated that a, quite a lot of U.S. support for the Saudi-led coalition is still continuing. Uh, and so we're still involved there. It's, and it's hard to say exactly to what degree. Yeah. I mean, so the way I took that was, I believe it was the end of April or the beginning of May of last year, 21, that Admiral Kirby said, oh, well, of course, we still got to provide them maintenance and stuff, or otherwise their planes wouldn't be able to fly. And so I just took that to mean it's all continuing. Obviously, we're still helping with the blockade, or there is no blockade. Um, and then I never got, I guess, this was never, you know, really confirmed hard one way or the other, whether they were still providing intelligence and logistics and, uh, you know, all of that you know, and more ammunition, but they just announced another massive new arms sale, which was obviously arranged during Biden's recent visit. So, uh, to UAE and to Saudi too. And mm. there was nothing in there that said on the condition that they stop bombing Yemen or anything like that. So, yeah. Um, well they do, um, I, they, they do have that, uh, for several months now. And I, I believe it's still going a ceasefire. Uh, did they did they end up re-upping that? Um, uh, yes, they did. Time? Yeah, uh -huh. that's a seems like a, a. I mean, hopefully it continues. It's a, certainly uh, much better than the previous, like five years. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. And um, in fact, so I don't know if you know about this, but maybe it's something to uh, cover in your articles. Is there's a war powers resolution now in the House and the Senate? It's HJ Res eighty seven in the House and fifty uh, Senate resolution. Uh, SR uh, 56 in the Senate, 87 and 56. And so this is, you know, the same one that uh, Trump vetoed back a couple of years ago that presumably would be more difficult for Biden to veto. And mm. there's, I know in the House, I already have more than 100 co-sponsors, including a dozen Republicans. Oh, that's um, great. I was not aware that that was back. Uh-huh. So the thing is they're gone for their August break now anyway. Right, yeah. So, yeah, now... um. I don't know if you had heard, but uh, the good guys took over the Libertarian Party at the end of May. And one of our first major projects was to drum up uh, all of our, you know, email list recipients and Twitter followers and so forth to all get on board this campaign. And there's a bunch of other left wing groups and Quakers, you know, at the Friends Committee and all of these other groups that 
you know, it's their idea. They're the ones doing it, but we're just, we're just helping them with their, you know, what they had the week of action. We kind of turned into a month of action and trying to keep up the phone calls to Congress and all that. So I'm hoping that we can, you know, create a new narrative here for after Labor Day, whenever it is. I think it's like the middle of September they finally come back from their break, something like that. And then maybe we can all get really ready and do a massive bombardment of Congress with phone calls and emails and, you know, at their D.C. offices and their local ones, too, and just get everybody talking about this. As you know, there's no one on TV who cares about this and champions this whatsoever. So it has to be, um, you know, just as it has been all along. And it's been remarkably effective, the grassroots campaigning on the issue of the war in Yemen. So um, it, it's going to take millions of us, you know, it's going to take, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of us at least to just absolutely bombard the Congress with the message that we demand that they pass this thing right now. And then obviously Biden could ignore that or veto it or do whatever he wants, but it's what we can do. And I mean, the law says that he would have to obey it. He'd be breaking the law to ignore it. I mean, they'd have to remove him to enforce it, but still, like, you know, I don't know. On the margin, I think it's definitely worth the effort. So I'm hoping that, especially since we can't do anything for August, maybe we can kind of save up all that energy and just unleash it in September, you know? Yeah, yeah, it would be uh, it would be great to to have. I, I remember the the last time this legislation came around. Um, like I said, I, I wasn't aware that it was back, but it would be it would be wonderful to to pass it. And by the way, um, I could put you in contact with some of the many activists and so forth who all have great stuff to say about this. Um, Asia Juman and all of them. So, uh, if you're interested in any of that, let me know. Yeah, I'll let you know. Okay, great. All right. Well, listen, I really appreciate your time on the show again. And I always appreciate seeing you in print, Bonnie. You're great. Thank you so much, Scott. Good to talk to you. All right, you guys, that is Bonnie Christian, and she is at Defense Priorities. And she's also the author of Untrustworthy, the new book coming out in October, The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics and Corrupting Christian Community. Check out this important article and share it around, would you? It's important to show people who don't know nothing about this might, uh, be a real red pill moment for them. Biden sends U.S. troops back to Somalia. That's at theamericanconservative.com. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.